0: Father, we come to you in Yeshua's name to receive from your word, Father. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Today's sermon title is called Content with Weakness. It seems like a strange title nowadays, because in the last several years, many congregations, many of them very large, very um, well-known, have developed a super focus on power and authority to the point where it seems. and I'm not kidding when I say this, because I've seen the videos, it seems to them, it seems okay to tell God what to do. I just saw a video this week by somebody who claimed they went to heaven and told God what to do, and I'm just, that's utter blasphemy. That only happened once in the Bible, and that was Joshua. Um, Anyway, what I'm finding in my research is that those congregations, and there's a lot of them now, have developed a lack of biblical balance, and that's not a dirty word because to be in balance is to be in the full counsel of God. Actually, the most balanced person in the world is God himself. I'm not talking about this congregation so much as I'm talking about the body of Messiah in general. So please don't think I'm aiming at anybody here. May the Lord do with this sermon as he sees fit and may it change at least one life. Even to those that are listening on the podcast. I want to read three different versions of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. I'm going to read out of the New American Standard Bible, not the recent version, but the almost recent version. I guess they've done a new version of the New American Standard, but I haven't read that yet. I'm going to read the same thing out of the Amplified and out of a modern translation called J.B. Phillips, by by A.J.B. Phillips, excuse me. This scripture deals with an aspect of Paul's life that doesn't seem to be used as much as it should be. Nowadays, we think of Saul or people like him as super anointed, full of power and loud and boisterous. And yet, when you look at scripture in Paul's life, and I'll read a few of them after this, When we look at Paul's life, we see the opposite. Paul was content after he became a believer. Before he became a believer, he was zealous to the point of killing people by his own admission. But once he became a believer, he became content, even happy about his weaknesses. Paul was, to me, a strong-willed individual A great mind and left to himself might try and force his views on other people violently. He described himself in the scripture where it says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says he was, as for zeal uh, to the law, he was a persecutor of the church. And I think if the Lord hadn't changed his life, as we'll see, I think he would have, as he did with uh, Barnabas and over Mark, he would have gotten into a great deal of arguments with people. So Paul was a strong-willed individual left to himself. He was a great mind and would probably try and force himself on other people violently. Yet almost from the very first day, he started to walk with Yeshua. The Lord made sure he stayed humble with numerous persecutions beatings, floggings, stonings, and so on. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10 in the New American Standard. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had received, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord, th- Lord three times that it might leave me, and he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Messiah, power of Christ, may dwell in me, Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Messiah's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's the complete opposite of what a lot of people are focusing on nowadays. Essentially, Paul and it. Paul doesn't say that he rebuked Satan. So Scripture interprets Scripture, and if it's not clear, then what is clear interprets Scripture. And so since he hasn't said anything about rebuking Satan, I'm assuming he didn't, or he did, and nothing happened, so he implored the Lord, and nothing happened. So in essence, as I'll read in two other versions, God said no. And we'll talk about that because I think we need to, talk, to deal with it. The Amplified Version says, Because of the surpassing greatness and extraordinary nature of the revelations which I receive from God, and that's probably part of the reason God hates pride, for this reason to keep me from thinking of myself as important, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to torment and harass me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it may leave me. But he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My loving kindness and my mercy are more than enough, always available, regardless of the situation. For my power is, and that my being God is being perfected and is completed and shows itself more effectively in your weakness. So we can't do everything. God has to do it through us. Therefore, I will all the more gladly boast about my weaknesses, and he says that more than once in Scripture, so that the power of Messiah may completely enfold me and may dwell in me. So I am well pleased with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and with difficulties for the sake of Messiah, for when I am weak in human strength, then I am strong, truly able, truly powerful, truly drawing from God's strength. And now in J.B. Phillips, a modern translation, Gentlemen lived in the 20th century. I'm not much on modern translations, but I think this does a good, effective job of explaining itself. So tremendous, however, were the revelations that God gave, that God gave me that in order to prevent my becoming absurdly conceited, which is, I realize now is kind of funny because I didn't know there was any other way to be conceited except absurdly. I was given a physical handicap, and this is his translation because whether it's a physical handicap or Satan or persecution or whatever, as he says, one of Satan's angels, that's the important part. He was given a handicap, one of Satan's angels, to harass me and effectively stop any conceit. Three times I begged the Lord for it to leave me, but his reply has great been, my grace is enough for you. For where there is weakness, my power is shown more completely. Therefore, I have cheerfully made up my mind to be proud of my weaknesses, because they mean a deeper experience of the power of Messiah. I can even enjoy weaknesses, suffering, privations, persecutions, and difficulties for Messiah's sake, for my very weakness makes me strong in him. No matter what translation I would use, And actually, based on my studies, I'll kind of give the sort of Allen's version translation later, um, based on my study. Um, The message of the scriptures is the same. Paul was a man who was powerfully used of God, but to make sure that Paul, Shaul, would not brag against God, which is something forbidden in scripture saying, My power, my great life, my great prayers, is the reason the Lord allowed a messenger of Satan to harass and buffet him. Literally, in the Greek, it implies to strike Paul. So, like Job, the Lord allowed Satan to persecute and strike him to keep him from boasting against the Lord. I think the other reasons Paul gave from the Lord was the statement that God's grace is enough for him, Paul. That the Lord told them when Paul is the most weak is when he, Paul, is the, God, excuse me, I wrote that wrong, is the strongest. Well, when Paul is the weakest is when he's strongest, God is moving through him. Rather than removing the satanic obstacle, Paul was told to endure it in the grace of God. When Paul was told, my grace is sufficient, he was told to walk through the issue. It seems a contradiction, but we will see that this is actually a common pattern in Scripture. Endure the circumstances with the help of the grace of God. And please, I am not saying God doesn't heal people. I'm just saying we have to allow for the sovereignty of God. We have to trust God has our best at heart because that's his nature. This scripture is nowadays by and large ignored in many parts of the body of Messiah, particularly in certain parts of the body of Messiah that, as I said, super focus on the use of powers, be they of God or of the devil. It is to the point... Now, in some congregations, and I've seen this, where a person will seem off if they are not telling God demons and all of mankind where to sit, stand, and walk. Yet, when we look at Paul's life, we see the opposite attitude. We see a man of God constantly under persecution, willing to accept beatings and even being killed, willing to be weak, willing to not take the credit for anything, considers everything worthless except his relationship with God and I'm currently reading a book that popped up on my radar so to speak recommended by a national blogger who reads more than I do if that's possible um, on teachings from the Chinese church nine different people and I realized as I'm I'm about halfway through it I'm on the fifth teaching and they're good solid basic, teaching, nothing, earth-shattering. but I realize I'm reading is they've got nothing. I mean, they've got nothing. They've had it all stripped away, and all they have left is God. And essentially, I'm looking at their teachings, and it's like they're like miles ahead of many people in this country, unfortunately. So let's look at a few examples in Scripture that Paul's not the only one doing that. That people came face to face with God and was confronted by his weakness and had to learn to trust the Lord. The first one is Gideon, Uh, Judges chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. I'll be reading in the Tree of Life version. It's Judges chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. Gideon was chosen by the Lord to lead Israel out of bondage from the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other Midi's peoples. And I thought of this because that's my current um, was my current daily Bible study last week. In Judges, the Lord chose him, and yet Gideon responds with this: "Pardon me, my Lord." The angel of the Lord came to Gideon, sat down under a tree. And asked the Lord, asked Gideon to deliver Israel. And um, so, how would I respond if God did that to me? Probably the same way. Pardon me, my Lord," Gideon replied. "But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all His wonders that our ancestors told us about when He said, Did not the Lord when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt?'" But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian, which shows how little the word of God was being taught in that day. I mean, he basically was clueless. Where is God? Well, God made it pretty explicit where God was. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have. Save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. So here Gideon came face to face with what he realized later was the angel of the Lord. And his first impression was, what, me? He didn't say, he didn't blow himself up and and exalt himself. He realized his weakness. And the Lord answered him the same way as we'll see he answered Moses. The Lord answered, I'll be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. In other words, the reason Gideon, despite all his flaws, before, during, and after, he did it because the Lord was with him. Notice that when confronted with the presence of the Lord, he, Gideon, did not call upon his self-esteem And say, say, thank you, Lord, for recognizing that I am such a great man. No, rather, he realized that he was a nobody in a weak clan in Manasseh and considered himself the least in his family. Yet that is exactly what the Lord wanted. There would be no way Gideon could boast against the Lord. He, Gideon, would win because, in verse 16, the Lord would be with him. And the story continues. When the people of Israel gathered together, the Lord stated, uh, Judges chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, early in the morning, Jerobal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said <clears throat> to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. He can't and won't deliver Midian because there are too many Israelites. My own strength has saved me. They would boast against God, saying, my own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So I think they honed it down to what, just 300 men? Just a few hundred men. The Lord was very specific on this issue. There would be no bragging on who saved Israel. It was to be God and God alone. And in uh, Judges chapter 7, verses 17 through 23, we see the, what to us would be silly tactics of Gideon that the Lord used. Verse 17, watch me, Gideon told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle of watch just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Kind of silly tactics, but it must have made a lot of noise, especially if they were in a valley or a valley with hills. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords, so they're fleeing killing each other. The army fled to Bethshittah, towards Zerera as far as the border of Abel Mehulah near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, "Come down against the Midianites, and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them, as far as Beth Barah." A second example would be Moses, yes, Moses. Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 through 12. Rabbi Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu. Yet when Moses faced the God of Israel in the burning bush, any pride he had flew out the door. He came face to face with his weakness and his past history of murder. Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 through 12. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, God said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. You'd think it was Moses, but when you come face to face with God, according to scripture, that's what ends up happening. We'll see that in the third example I'll give, a short one. Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Can you imagine? Wait 80 years, and in two minutes his whole life changed. Poof, it just completely changed. So Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And this is a third example of weakness. Um, I came across this teaching by R.C. Sproul on the holiness of God. I really recommend people listen to it. It's a six-part video series or a book. And when Isaiah came face-to-face with his weakness, he had a vision of the Lord in the temple of God, and the vision not just blew him away, but almost blew him apart, literally. Almost killed him. Uh, I forgot to read Isaiah chapter 6 starting in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw Adonai sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So angels, in the presence of God, day and night, had to cover their face 24 hours a day, eternally, because they couldn't—they could barely be in the presence of God. They cover, the seraphim cover their face, their feet, and two he flew. So God designed them that way. One called to another and said, "Holy, holy, holy is out The whole earth is full of his glory." And the posts of the door trembled at the voice of those who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, excuse me, this is the translation from the Tree of Life version, oi to me, for I am ruined. I'm sure Isaiah was not speaking Yiddish. (laughs) For I am a man of unclean lips, and I am dwelling among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, Adonai Tsevaot. And then the angels flew to Isaiah and put a hot coal on his lips. Now it may sound funny that the translator for the Tree of Life version said, Oi to me. But according to R.C. Sproul, that's actually reasonably accurate. Because what when Yeshua said, Woe unto you, he was cursing them. Yeshua, he was cursing people, he was throwing down a curse on people who were in deliberate sin. And so when Isaiah said, Woe unto me, according to R. C. Sproul, the closest that we could get to it to be accurate would be Oy mir," Woe is me. That's what essentially when people say. They say it is sort of humorously, but when you say woe is me, oy ves mirror, you're sort of throwing a curse on yourself. <laughs> so you gotta be careful. <coughs> so these three examples help us to be discerning of those who claim they have seen the Lord and have gone to heaven. The current term is called heaven tourism, which is plenty of books. The biblical facts are when you see the Lord, the actual Lord, you are humbled and brought low. you don't go there and tell God what to do, He tells you what to do. This is why we can say with confidence that Paul was a man of humility. Why? Because of his act- his actual encounters with the Lord, his visions, his attitude, prove that he had seen the actual Lord. They humbled him and kept him low. They didn't exalt him. He had his perspective correct. So let's look at the scriptures a little bit that I talked about in Second Corinthians. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. That means that all of God, all of his power is everything. He is sufficient for us. It is enough for us. That means Paul was content to let God move through him and let God receive the glory. Is the Lord sufficient for you? Can we honestly say, you know, God is our bread? It is easy to say yes, he is. But is he really? Are you ready to not always have a ready answer, not always be the center of attention or have all the answers? Are you content to sit and listen, let others speak without interruption, always thinking you're the center of attention, but to put others first, as Rabbi Frank said in the Torah reading? Are you willing to put other people into the equation? If an answer is needed, are you willing to give a biblical answer? Think hard. Can you say that God is your sufficiency? That means he's enough. And that's not a metaphor. He means that literally. Is God enough for you? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Again, that is not a metaphor. He meant that literally, I believe. Is it sufficient for you to endure through whatever crisis you are going through? And in verse 9, it's says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Messiah may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Messiah's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Honestly, can depending on who you listen to, it would be hard to Imagine many people saying that nowadays, content with weakness, happy with weakness, so that God can work through him. And that just means how much things have deteriorated in the body of Messiah and Western culture. People are always exalting themselves, telling others how great they are, how powerful they are. Yet Paul, Shaul stated that he was weak, that there was nothing in him to boast about, As Yohanan, the baptizer, Yohanan, the immerser, said, he, John, must decrease and Yeshua must increase. Why? The less of us means the more of God's power in us and working through us. Are we content to be weak? Let God's power work through us. So let me read my amplified version when I studied in um, the lexicon, the Greek lexicon. It's... um, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Essentially, Paul is saying that he is well-pleased and is fine with weakness, frailty, sickness, infirmities, insults, insolence, outrages, injuries for the purpose of damaging us with his, with being compelled by force or violence, pain, compulsion, persecutions, being confined, distressed by being boxed in, that would be, um, we, we says difficulties. It's like a, you have a sense that you're being boxed in or being boxed into a corner. Kind of what, what happens to animals when you corner them? And rather than fight back, Paul stands back. For when we are in those conditions of weakness, then Messiah is strong and powerful. He is the chief of men. So he's saying, when I am weak, Yeshua is the mighty one, the powerful one, the chief of men. He's the one with spiritual strength. And I'm not saying that people should deliberately be abused. I'm not saying that people should be in a relationship that's abusive. Even scripture forbids that. We're not supposed to be abused for unrighteous reasons, but for righteous reasons. So, This was not the last time Paul talked about this, and and I'll give a few scriptures. You can write this down and look at them later. Romans 15, 18. For I will not dare to speak of anything except what Messiah accomplished through me to bring about the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Um, Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Paul says, For you see your calling, brothers and sisters, that not many are wise according to human standards, not many are powerful, not many are born well. Yet God chose the foolish things of the world so that he might shame the wise, and God chose the weak things of the world so that he might put to shame the strong. And God chose the lowly and despised things of the world, the things that are as nothing, so that he might bring to nothing the things that are so that no human might boast before God. And because of him you are in Messiah Yeshua, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and holiness and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in Adonai. He says the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. Paul says, "'If I must boast, I will boast in my weakness.'" In Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, he says to the Galatians, But may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Through him the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And finally, there's Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. This is what the Lord said. Let no wise man boast of his wisdom, nor let the mighty man boast of his might, nor a rich man boast of his riches, but let the one who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises mercy, justice, righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So if you're discipling somebody who's a new believer, teach them about the Lord, came straight from his lips. So we see in scripture that it is a common theme to be humble, to not brag or boast. And as Isaiah puts it so aptly under the inspiration of the Ruach HaKodesh for us to brag, as it says um, in uh, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 15, It says, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops it, is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it. This would be like a club wielding those who lift it, or like a rod lifting the one who is not wood. For us to brag is to think that the axe chops the person holding it, or the saw boasting that it is better than the person holding it. One of the main things we need to deal with is what the implications of the Lord's answer to Paul. We need to deal with that. The Lord could have said, Yes, I will take it away. However, he didn't. Essentially, he left, we are left with the possibility that for God's own reasons, and God is not obligated to explain himself, he said, No, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul, everything you need is available by my grace. Trust my sovereignty. Paul, I want you to walk through the problem, not wish it away. Basically, Paul needs needed to learn to totally depend on the Lord in all circumstances. Since Paul was in a visible position in the body of Messiah, what he does or doesn't do affects other people, the thousands of his era and the millions and the centuries to come. And Lest we think, and I'll end on these scriptures, that Paul's the only one who said we need to endure, let me give you a few more. Yeshua himself said, Matthew 10.22, and you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end shall be saved. Mark 13.13, and you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And that doesn't mean salvation, salvation. You don't get, I, I think that's part of the manifestation of it. You get saved by grace. But that's why uh, the apostles, the first apostles, uh, say much about persecution and hard times, because that's how the Lord proved who was his believer and who wasn't. Uh, some people left, and as the Scripture says, they left because they weren't part of us to begin with. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, it says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the chosen, so that they might obtain the salvation that is in Messiah Yeshua with eternal glory. Trustworthy is the saying if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And uh, something to uh, think about. I mentioned at my last series in 2 Timothy chapter four verses three through five, Paul said, "For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. It's an interesting twist on it. They will not. Endure sound doctrine. We're supposed to endure, but the time will come and we're seeing it now that people won't endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work on evangelists evangelist. fulfill your ministry. So there's, scripture is, explicitly states in the end times people will not be able to endure hold up under sound doctrine you literally speak sound doctrine and people think you're crazy and these are people who think they're believers rather than letting scripture break us mold us into the image of messiah they will reject it and walk away from it lest they be convicted they will uh, be convicted and be crushed under its weight so to speak And in James, it says, James chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And I'll finish on Hebrews. We we see in this scripture that Contrary to what a lot of people believe or even focus on nowadays, Paul was content and loved being weak, not glorifying himself so that Yeshua may be magnified and even to the point where they weren't pointing at him but they could see Yeshua in him. So Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 has a lot to say on enduring through hard times, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also get rid of every weight and entangling sin. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, focusing on Yeshua, the initiator and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And we're supposed to follow in that example. Disregarding its shame, and he has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God, consider him, Yeshua, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary in your souls and lose heart. Amen.